Transmitting from the lovely little city of Taylor, Texas, you are listening to Plow and Hose, a show dedicated to the joys and challenges of organic backyard gardening in Central Texas. I am your host, Julie Rydell. Welcome to the show. Well, hi there, plant friends. Welcome to Plow and Hose. Thank you for joining me again in my backyard once again. It's a hot one. I am just out here on the patio just sweating. It's so gross and humid, but I did not turn the patio fans on because I didn't want the extra noise. So I will just sit here and suffer so that you guys can have a better listening experience. You know, I am just still amazed about how quickly we seem to go from a full month of unusually wet and unusually overcast and rainy weather in May. It, it just seems like it was like overnight that it was summertime in Central Texas. I don't know, but I gotta say I love it. I love having sunny days. I love the sunshine, but I'm sure that by August that I'll be hating it. Um, I'll be hating all the heat and so sick and tired of it, just like everybody else, but I don't know. For now, I'm enjoying it. All right, so what is going on in y'all's gardens? My In my garden here, the cucumbers and the squash have kind of started doing that thing in the mornings where they're, you know, I go out and check on the garden and they're like, oh, look at us. We're so pretty and vibrant and green and we're super alive. But then by lunchtime when I come home from work, um, you know, I'll take a peek out at the garden, maybe walk around and they are just wiped out and zapped looking from the heat. But right now, they are still pringing up in the morning, so I'm not all that concerned about them drying up and dying right now, but I'm really not sure how many more um, cucumbers and squash that I'll be able to get. Um, it's, I think it's getting a little too hot for them right now. Now, my squash plants, they got issues, so... I am done with them. I am done fertilizing them. I'll keep watering them for a little bit just because they're um, a really attractive plant, but I've lost three or four more squash vines to those stupid squash vine borers, and I'm so sick of them. The ones that are left hanging on, I'm still getting blossoms, and I decided just to leave them alone for the time being because the bees love them. They are always up in those big, bright, golden squash blossoms. So if I'm not going to be able to get any squash from them, then I'm cool with it. The bees might as well enjoy them. You know, another thing that I'm really admiring in my backyard, I'm really impressed with my crepe myrtles this year. We have, uh, we have like nine or ten of them um, 
around the backyard and um, they were here when we got here. They've been here quite a long time. We didn't plant any of them. Um, we've been at this house for 15 or 16 years and they were already quite large and well established when we moved. So we've got some really nice uh, crepe myrtles back here. And right now I have some really beautiful crepe myrtles they are just blooming like crazy so here in my backyard we have a row of white crepe myrtles and they are just covered in blossoms just tons and tons of flowers on them and you know as it gets a little bit further along in the year they've started to shed some of those blossoms and now there's a thin layer of white blossoms on the ground in that part of the yard and kind of looks like snow and I think it's really cool I think it's really pretty and I don't know I, I'm just really enjoying my crepe myrtles right now I think crepe myrtles are wonderful trees they are one of the most interesting trees in my little opinion there's always something going on with them every season in the springtime they put on nice glossy leaves they bloom in the summertime and they comes in, they come in all kinds of colors of course white red lavender and then a darker purple plus all of the shades of pink from pale baby pink to hot pink and magenta and then in the fall um, all those dark green glossy leaves they start to turn red and we have they're one of the few red leaf trees that we have here in Central Texas I don't know I love them crepe myrtle trunks are also so like in the winter time when there's no leaves no flowers their trunks are really cool too and they do kind of remind me of like cinnamon sticks I really like how the bark will kind of it, it's like self exfoliating it will peel off and then it sheds a layer of bark and it leaves behind a really interesting modeled pattern on the trunks and even though it's kind of unnerving and a little concerning because you know bark is coming off a tree is usually a really bad thing but for crepe myrtles it's just what they do when they start shedding bark that's a good indication that they will be blooming soon the thin bark will start to curl up and then pull away from the trunk and then it falls off and this happens because they shed last year's bark in the summer right before they bloom so the old weathered and gray bark peels off and then underneath is the new, I guess this year's bark. It's rich and warm and kind of rusty cinnamon colored. All that new growth is underneath and I think it's really interesting and really pretty. Crepe myrtle trees come in as many different sizes as they do different colors they range in size from dwarf trees that don't get taller than like five feet tall and they're more like a shrub to taller trees that can grow up to 50 feet tall 
And of course, there's always the middle sister. There's an intermediate size that gets to be about 12 feet tall. So in addition to the white ones that I have in my backyard, I also have some just gorgeous, stunning purple crepe myrtles. They're kind of like a dark lavender, but they are so vibrant this year. They kind of look electric, like, like a neon purple or like a highlighter pen purple. I don't know. This year, they just seem much more colorful than in years past. And if I had to guess why, I think it was probably had something to do with the freeze. That's the only thing that's that was different from um, years past. So I don't know. They just look absolutely amazing. And I'm so happy that I have them here in my yard. I'm not sure about you guys, but the bugs have just been awful at my place this year. I mean, mosquitoes, of course, are so bad. They're really bad this year. I've also seen, I've also got lots of cucumber bugs, both the striped ones and the spotted ones. You know, earlier in the spring, I had issues with spider mites. I don't know. I Right now, I keep coming across those stink bugs just sucking the juices out of my tomatoes. I've got these small brown and orange white stripey grasshopper looking bugs. I haven't quite figured out what those are. I keep seeing them around. And then I've had black cactus bug that have been just sucking the life out of one of my dragon fruit cacti. So many bugs. And so far this month, I feel like all I do in the garden is look for any sort of bugs, just anything that might be eating on my plants, and then running back to the patio and grabbing whatever insecticide I think will work for them. I'm like a maniac. It's it's probably pretty hilarious to watch me. It's definitely a challenge, but I like to think that I'm smarter than some of these bugs. So <laughs> to combat all of these hungry and destructive little critters, I have like this little mini arsenal of organic products and tools that I keep on my back patio. You know, over the years I have tried lots of different products and techniques to keep pests under control but I always seem to go back to the ones that are easy effective and relatively inexpensive so in my little plastic tote box that I have on the patio with all my gardening things I keep a couple of spray bottles they're two different colors one is for liquid fertilizers when I want to foliar feed my garden plants and then the other one is exclusively for mixing mixing up liquid um, organic pesticides like bacillus thuringiensis which is BT and I use that on caterpillars or you know I might mix up some insecticidal soaps for other soft body critters like spider mites or aphids. In my little tub, I have a bag of diatomaceous earth in, um, I also have this 
old Parmesan cheese container, the, you know, just like the kind that you get at the grocery store that comes with the grated um, Parmesan in it. I fill that up with diatomaceous earth and then I take that out to my garden and I sprinkle diatomaceous earth on um, wherever I have um, insect issues. Diatomaceous earth is really good for dealing with snails and slugs and pill bugs. I keep a bag um, of that in my tote along with a bag of granular spinosad ant bait. Um, that is probably my f all time favorite product. It's really the best with dealing with fire ant mounds. I can just take my little bag, I can shake some on it, and then the ants will come up and take the bait and then take it back down into their mound. Um, it's a, it seems a little expensive, but it's just so much more convenient and so much more easier than other methods like boiling water and pouring hot water or hot vinegar onto an ant mound. You have to do those things multiple times, whereas these spinosad granules are, sometimes it works in one dose, sometimes it takes two applications. Um, boiling water and some of like the orange oil, I don't have time for all that, so I just keep my little bag of granular spinosad in my, my container so I can just grab it and go sprinkle it on those mounds. I also have a bottle of neem oil and it's great for treating certain kind of pests and fungal issues. Neem oil is derived from the seed kernels of the neem tree. Neem trees are an evergreen tree, uh, tree that grow in the tropics and the subtropics. The oil is like a yellowish nasty brown and it has a a disgusting odor. It's kind of like a cross between onions or garlic and body odor. It's so gross. If you've never smelled it, just take my word for it. I can confirm that it doesn't smell good. I mean, it's not the worst smell in the whole wide world. I've smelled worse things, but it is really disgusting and I can totally see how it would be a really great insect repellent because it, it's repulsive to me <laughs> but anyway neem trees are part of the uh, mahogany family they are native to the Indian subcontinent so India and Sri Lanka and they grow throughout the drier parts of Southeast Asia. They grow in Africa, the Caribbean, and South America. Neem trees can grow to be like nearly 100 feet tall. They're huge trees. And they have thick, shaggy bark. And from what I can tell on the internet, I've never seen a real neem tree. But from pictures, um, the leaves kind of look like uh, china berry trees and the fruit looks a whole lot like green olives it totally reminds me of of green olives 
Since neem oil is made from crushed seeds, there are different standards for processing them when it comes to horticultural or cosmetic and medicinal applications. So they will process them a little bit differently. So if you want to use neem products in your garden, just stick to the ones that are horticultural grade. You wouldn't want to mix and match um, your medicinal applications with your horticultural stuff. So if you get some neem oil, keep it outside. Neem has been used for a really, really long time as an organic pesticide, but it's also a very important plant used in Ayurvedic and folk medicine. It has a, a lot of bioactive properties. And the active ingredient is called azadiractin, which is antibacterial and it's antifungal. It's used all over the world as an insect repellent and folks use it for um, treating skin diseases. Now, I'm just telling you all of that, not because I want you to rub neem oil on your stuff, on your body, if you have any sort of skin issues. I'm just telling you that I think it's really interesting and it's worth y'all doing a little more personal investigation on neem, especially the medicinal purposes. I think it's they're really interesting. But Plow and Hose is a gardening show. So I am really only focused on using neem oil on plants and in gardening. So don't be trying horticultural neem oil on your body. You know, don't be trying to treat athlete's foot or ringworm or whatever. I don't know how well that would actually work since it's supposed to go on plants. But I can tell you, it smells bad and you really don't want to get it on your skin because it reeks and people will probably sniff you and think you have bad BO. So don't do that. <laughs> In the garden, neem oil is great for organic gardening. It's biodegradable. It's non-toxic, so it's safe to use around your family, your pets, livestock, fish, wildlife. It's totally safe for all of us. It's bad for bugs. But another great thing about neem oil is that it doesn't build up in the soil like other agricultural chemicals. Synthetic pesticides tend to kill all insects including the beneficial ones like ladybugs and bees and butterflies, all of those other pollinators. Neem oil really only affects leaf sucking and leaf chewing insects. Neem oil works by just straight up killing some of these critters, either by coating their bodies um, and that oil will smother them or they disrupt their growth hormones in those bad bugs. So they can't survive long enough to move on to the next stage of development. Other pests, neem oil tastes terrible, it smells bad, and it repels them. Neem oil has the greatest impact on t handling and controlling aphids, mites, scale, leafhoppers, whiteflies, caterpillars, mealybugs, and thrips. 
So kind of the smaller of the smaller soft-bodied insects and neem oil is pretty good on those. Neem oil is also um, effective in controlling harmful nematodes. Nematodes are teeny tiny microscopic um, unsegmented worms and they live in the soil and on top of the soil. There are bad ones and beneficial nematodes. The bad ones will feed on your plant and cause a whole lot of damage if they are left untreated. On the other hand, beneficial nematodes affect um, they will affect insects. Beneficial nematodes have a bacteria in their guts and when the insects consume beneficial nematodes, that bacteria gets in them and it's the bacteria that kills the bugs. Neem oil works by um, preventing larvae from hatching and it's really quite effective on root knot nematode larvae root knot nematodes they get up all in the root system of plants and they start swiping off nutrients from the plant and it causes them to develop these ball-like formations it's called gall g-a-l and if you've ever pulled up a plant and you've seen like all these like bumpy nodes those are caused by root knot nematodes Neem oil can kill insects at different stages and you can use it during the winter to kill um, eggs that um, kind of take a while. So like the, the bugs will lay their eggs in the soil and then they overwinter. They kind of hang out and gestate over winter. But if you spray neem oil um, over the winter, it, it can kill um, some of those eggs. When it's diluted and used as a spray, it can also repel and kill insects at pretty much any time of the year. Another cool thing about neem oil is that insects have not become resistant to it yet. Unlike some of the synthetic pesticides, neem oil still works on pests and insects that you don't want in your yard. And I think that's probably because it affects all stages of insect de development. You can use neem oil on your houseplants too. So if you have an issue for some reason with aphids and mealybugs on your houseplants, it's safe to use inside and it's really effective on those small soft body critters. Neem oil is also a natural fungicide for common fungal diseases like powdery mildew, black spot, rust, and leaf spot. Now personally, I don't get too upset over powdery mildew and fungal spots. Most of the time, if you're out walking around in your garden on a daily basis and you're able to notice issues when they first come up, early intervention is really going to help spread slow the spread of fungal diseases. You just clip off the worst parts and then you can spray the rest of your plant with neem because 
funguses spread by spores, and those are also microscopic. So even if you clip that off, you could still have some spores hanging around, and you, you won't really see them develop until they um, turn into like black spots or powdery mildew. But if you're gonna do, if you're gonna spray them with neem, wait a week and see how your plants respond because you may need to do more regular application of neem oil spray and you'll have to keep up with that for because certain plants are really sensitive um, and susceptible to powdery mold powdery mildew some plants are just more likely to get it these fungal diseases so something else that you can do to help control that is do a little research and select varieties that are more resistant to it and you'll spend a whole lot less time and a whole lot less money and have better results if you select plants that have powdery mildew resistance. Neem oil can also help treat bacterial wilt, but again, you'll have to just monitor your plants and reapply as necessary. Neem, neem oil, neem products are great. They're environmentally friendly, but you really should try to keep your neem oil stored out of the sunlight. You know, don't leave it in the yard where it's going to get a whole lot of sun because it will break down and deteriorate really quickly um, if it's exposed to a lot of sunlight. You are listening to Plow and Hose on KBSR Black Sparrow Radio. If you are enjoying my show, I hope you will go over to www.blacksparrowmusicparlor.com and check out the station and learn all about the really cool shows and all the great music coming out of our little station broadcasting from Taylor, Texas. While you're out on the internet, be sure to stop by the Plow and Hose Facebook page and like and share it with your gardening friends. Or, you know, head over to wherever you get your uh, podcasts, like Spotify or Apple Podcasts, wherever, and subscribe to the Plow and Hose podcast. If you like the flexibility of being able to play, pause, and rewind my show whenever you want, please, please go download some episodes and be sure to leave a review. It's really quick. You just click on the stars, maybe type up a sentence or two about what you like about the show, and then click submit. It's so ridiculously easy, and it would really help others find the show. And then also, you know, downloading the Plow and Hose episodes also provides me with show statistics. So please go on out, leave a review, download some shows. I really, really would appreciate it. Okay, well, now that it is pretty much late June, we're in the last week of June, isn't that right? There aren't a whole lot of things to plant to be able to harvest this summer. The planting window for summer vegetable seeds here in Central Texas is really limited. It's just gonna be too, too hot for most seedlings to survive or be productive because they, like blossoms, are heat sensitive. If it's too hot, they just won't produce flowers or they won't fertilize and set fruit. So there's 
there's just a few things, just a handful of vegetables that you can plant from seed. So if you have some space and you want to put something in, you can still put in warm season greens like amaranth or purple orange. You can plant southern peas, okra, pumpkins. If you have sweet potato slips that you need to plant, get them in the ground because June is your last chance if you want sweet potatoes in the fall. Just be sure to keep all your seedlings well mulched. And if you see that they're struggling with that afternoon, summer sun, try putting up some shade cloth to help protect them from the very worst of the afternoon sun. Now, if you are interested in learning more about warm season greens and want to know more about them, go over to where you get your podcast and download episode 19 from May 16th. I spend some time talking about what exactly warm season greens are and kind of describe what they taste like. But just go over to wherever you get your podcasts, sure, uh, do a search for Plow and Hose, and you'll find all the recordings for this year. So go check it out and get caught up on any shows that you might have missed. All right, I got a question for you guys. Are you thinking about your fall garden yet? No, I'm not either. I know, it's summer. It's just barely summer, and it's getting so hot, and it just seems way too early to be thinking about fall crops. But if you want to continue to harvest things throughout the summer and into September and October, you got to start planning and prepping your garden now. This is the best time to start tomatoes, peppers, and eggplants from seed you'll have enough time to get them started and placed in your garden. Um, it's too hot to start these guys outside in the full sun, but you can totally start them inside. So why don't you give that a try if you have any leftover seeds or, you know, go to the store, pick up, a, uh, pick up some eggplant seeds if you've never grown that. Give that a try. Maybe a new variety of pepper. There's still seeds available. Um, not necessarily as much variety, but go check it out. The internet's a great place if you can't find them locally. Another thing that you can try doing with tomatoes is propagating them from a cutting. It's really, really easy to do. Just go out to your favorite tomato plant that you have out in your garden right now Pick the one that did really well for you this year or, you know, maybe it had like the, the most tasty fruit on it and go check out that plant and then look for where the stems meet the main branch and in this little V shape, that little crotch where the stem and the main branch meet, this is where the new growth is and those new growth um, those are called suckers. Suckers are really just new new sprouts. The, if you let them go, they will turn into big long stems. A lot of people will remove the suckers so that the plant can put its energy into fruit production instead of new growth. But 
if you're if you're already out there doing that you know go ahead and save some if you're not just go out there and and find a sucker just snip it off or clip it off and use them to make more tomato plants just pinch them off cut them off stick them in a glass of water and then in about a week or so you'll start to see new baby roots on your stem you can put the sucker you know straight into the soil and it'll form some roots too you just won't be able to see when it uh, when it happens if you do it that way but give it a try i mean you can make free plants i mean and plants that you know that you like and will do well in your yard so give it a shot it's going to take a couple of weeks for nice viable roots to form before you can um, put them in like a little four inch pot. You want to um, plant them in soil and give them the opportunity to develop into a small pot before you transplant them into your garden. Another interesting thing about those suckers and tomato stems in general is if you've ever noticed that white fuzz on tomato stems, each of those little fibers has the potential to make roots. So if you have kids, this is a really cool way that you can engage them in gardening. You can try rooting them in a, cl in a clear glass of water. And it's a really cool visual. And even if it's just for a few seconds or a minute or two each day, you can kind of talk to them about the science and what's going on and why you're doing it. And, you know, get them engaged and have them help you out in the garden. Even though there aren't a whole lot of things that we can plant in the garden right now in Central Texas, we are getting pretty close to being able to plant a whole new round of crops in July and August. Tomato seedlings can be transplanted in July, but you really have to be ready. So when your squash and your cucumbers that you planted in the springtime, when they start to fade and, and fade in the heat and they stop being productive, just go ahead and pull them out. You can add some fresh compost and then transplant new tomato seedlings. Just remember, I always have a hard time, you know, remembering this, but when you want to harvest something, you always name it after the season previous to it. So your fall garden starts in the summer. If you have a favorite summer vegetable, you can plant a second crop in the late summer. Here in Central Texas, we are so fortunate that we have an opportunity for an extended growing season. We do typically have very brutal hot temperatures in July and August. And I know it's hard to get enthusiastic about babying all those seedlings but it is very rewarding especially when you are able to harvest fresh produce way into the fall i'm going to be rooting some cuttings from my smaller tomatoes i've had super great luck this year with a variety called punta banda 
it's a thick skin cherry tomato tomato and it was first like discovered and found in the hot dry baja california area i ordered these seeds off the internet um and here in my backyard in taylor they have been awesome they have gone crazy Right now, they are covered in all these like small round orange tomatoes. Punta Banda tomato. It's doing really, really well. So I want to plant more of those in my fall garden. Punta Banda is a small, bushy, determinate type of tomato. Now, determinate tomatoes do better in the fall because they tend to be early producers, so you can harvest a lot of tomatoes fairly quickly into the growing season. Determinate tomato varieties also are also sometimes called bush tomatoes because they are pretty compact. They really only get to be about four feet tall and then they stop growing. I like to think that these tomatoes are just determined to stop growing. I always have to come up with a weird way to remember things, but these plants are like, I'm going to grow and grow and grow and grow, and then I'm going to stop. And then once they decide that they are full grown, they will stop growing, and then that's when they start putting on flowers. With determinate tomatoes, they have pretty much one opportunity to set flower, or to put on flowers and set fruit. With the right growing conditions, you will get lots of flowers and then lots of tomatoes. All the fruit on determinate tomatoes will ripen at the same time, like within a week or two. And then when it's done, it's done, the tomato plant dies or goes dormant. You might be able to get a second crop, but they're usually kind of struggling um, after that That really first wonderful harvest if your garden is full right now and you don't have a whole lot of space you can try to grow bushy tomatoes in containers because they are smaller plants determinate tomatoes are really great for container gardening just be sure to plant this type of tomato in at least a five gallon container the larger the better because tomatoes have really extensive root systems and they do best when they have plenty of room for their roots. Since they don't get that big, four feet or so, determinate tomatoes don't need a lot of caging or staking or any sort of supports. You can add a cage if you want to, but you can also just let them grow and flop over without any extra support. They're, like I said, they're gonna flop over a bit and it might make it annoying when it comes to harvesting. Personally, I prefer to stake or cage them. It just keeps them a little more tidy and off the ground. And uh, tomato plants really make me itchy. So the less I have to like handle them, the better. I've also had really good luck this year with shishito peppers i started these from seeds and they are doing really well for us 
better than the three other varieties that I started and tried this year in my garden. Shishito peppers are a Japanese variety. They are about, they range from like two to four inches long and they're thin, you know, not even an inch wide. They aren't thick and fleshy like a bell pepper or a jalapeno pepper. They have really thin walls and they have hardly any seeds. People love them because they are, for the most part, they are mild, but every now and then you get one that's a little on the spicy side. Nothing crazy, not like a habanero or scorpion or ghost pepper or anything like that, but it definitely has a bit of heat like a jalapeno, just enough to kind of like remember that they are peppers. think that it's kind of like maybe one out of 10 shishito peppers that you eat is hot. So, you know, when I'm having them like as a side dish or, or even as a meal, it's kind of like pepper roulette or something dumb like that. <laughs> you just never know which one is going to be spicy. You just have to bite into all of them, but they're so delicious. And even if you get a spicy one, um, you'll, you'll still really enjoy them. You can like make like a light tempura type batter and kind of deep fry them. I've not had them battered like that, but my go-to recipe is super easy and it's delicious. So all I do to make shishito peppers is I'll put my cast iron skillet on the stove and then I get it let like really, really hot. I'll rinse and dry off um, the peppers. Um, I don't cut the stems off, I just leave those on there. I toss them with a little vegetable oils and then just throw them in the hot skillet. And then in less than a minute, they start to blister and they get kind of toasty. You know, just turn them over, stir them up and let the other side blister. Then, then I turn off the heat and shake some salt on them and then give them a good squeeze of some lemon or lime juice. Oh, they are so delicious. I have, I'll make them like when I come home on my lunch break and it's just so easy and quick. They're salty and sour, a little bit smoky. And then every now and then I'll bite into a nice spicy one. It's, um, they're, they're really, really good. I encourage you guys to try to um, maybe get some seeds and get seedlings going right now and put those in your fall garden. I know that's what I'm going to be doing. Shishitos can also be grown in containers. Um, they're kind of a small plant. They only get about 12 inches or so. So, if you want to try those, try them in a container. Speaking of containers, now that we have officially crossed into our long Texas summer, you need to get into the routine of watering your potted plants on a daily basis. Containers drain and they dry out so quickly in the sun and the heat. If your potted plants are out in full sun all day long, 
you better believe they're going to dry out really, really quickly. And you absolutely have to keep an eye on them. Otherwise, they're going to fry. Check on them every day. And if you can't, you know, try to find somebody that can help you keep your plants alive while you're away. You know, ask a family member or a neighbor or reach out to somebody to water your plants if you are leaving town this summer. Another thing you can do for your containers is go ahead and add some mulch. Add some compost to your containers. This is going to help retain moisture in those pots. And really anything that you can do for your potted plants to keep them moist as it heats up, it'll be great. And you'll be able to keep your plants looking good all summer long. All right, guys. This is, I've been doing plow and hose for almost a year now. So I'm coming up on my one year anniversary. So I'm trying to come up with something fun that we can do for next week's episode. That'll be um, my first year anniversary. I've been doing the podcast now for six months, um, but I've actually had the radio show for a full year now. So be sure to listen turn tune in next sunday on um, kbsr at 9 a.m at on sunday it repeats on saturday morning at 9 a.m and then of course we also have the podcast production assistance provided by kbsr black sparrow radio original music created by alex cuervo discover more of his music at alexcuervo.tv if you love plants and gardening in central texas be sure to click the subscribe button wherever you get your podcasts and never miss seasonal information on plow and hose plow and hose is written and recorded at my home in taylor texas